This is Two Guys in the Bible. This is a conversation on theology, culture, and God's most holy word. My name is Dylan Keniston, and I am joined by my co-host this morning, Eric Leupold. How are you doing this morning, brother? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm very blessed this morning. How about yourself? Same, same. It's been a very busy week for me. We were just talking before we started recording how busy the weeks have been. Yeah, yeah. but it's Both been good. Us, I think. Yeah, yeah. Better than the alternative. You know, better than the alternative. Um, yeah, that's true. So, so today, what we're going to be talking on is right to life. Uh, and the death penalty in particular, and how those two kind of get, uh, you know, how to think through those. Because, you know, I, I confess, so when I was, um, you know, new in the faith, I was very, very much against the death penalty. I was very, very much, and, you know, kind of like along with, hey, if you believe in the sanctity of life, then you're not just going to go, you know, kill somebody, even if they had committed all these crimes, because you, you don't have perfect knowledge, and, you know, maybe we get it wrong, and maybe we kill an innocent person, and da 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 da, da. So, like, I, have, I had wrestled with this, you know, when I was young in the faith, um, deeply. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting that, you know, that kind of mentality that kind of pushes back against some of those thoughts is not uncommon in the Christian community. And so, you know, there's at least, it, it at least warrants a conversation, right? Because clearly, you know, God is the author of all life. You know, we makes us want to defend the sanctity of that life. But then on the flip side of that, we also have part of the sanctity of that life being its value and the, the, corresponding uh, weightiness of the punishment when something of such high worth is taken away uh, needlessly, right, or mm -hmm. illegally. Mm -hmm. So um, so we'll talk about some of those mm -hmm. some of those different items today. So Eric, I mean, if you could just kind of lay a foundation for us, you know, when we talk about the right to life, death penalty, first of all, why broach the subject from your perspective? And, you know, could you just talk a little bit about, you know, give us a biblical framework for valuing life generally? Yeah, I think that... Uh... Uh, if uh, for those of you who are listening, uh, our, our last recording we talked about um, human rights in general and uh, where they come from, um, their origin. Why do people even have rights? Uh, are they God-given? Are they just there? Um, and what are those rights? I mean, is it a right to anything? A right to a car, to coffee every morning, you know, to a cell phone? So, I think that conversation. Uh, naturally led into this conversation about, you know, this is one of the fundamental rights. If you, if you think of perhaps our uh, founding fathers, founding documents, we often hear the, the phrase right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And it, any kind of discussion of rights, usually life is one of the first ones that's mentioned. Um, and, and rightly so, I think, because it's probably the most important one and uh, of highest value of all the others. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about the right to life, and that's very much tied into some of the arguments in the pro-life position, you know, in our own country today, we're seeing uh, a, a very uh, animated discussions and intense discussions about abortion, about right to unborn life and things like that. So, and in my own discussions with um, with folks, uh, if I if I show them that I'm a, a pro life pro life position holder, uh, they might say, "Well, how can you also be, you know, pro the death penalty? Or how can you uh, serve in the military if if you're so much in favor of protecting life?" So, I and think there are like be... entire strands of like the pacifist tradition in yeah. Christianity yeah. that would go down those lines. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And there may be maybe even some Christians who 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 I respect greatly and, and love as brothers and sisters in the Lord who 
who believe that the consistent position is to be against killing in general. Mm. So, yeah, they're against abortion, but they're also against the death penalty and they're against serving in the military. So they would view that as a very consistent position. And on the surface, it does seem consistent, but I hope to maybe uh, flesh that out a little bit and show how that's not necessarily the case. Got it. Got it. So, I mean, can you give us a framework for kind of where this right to life comes from, right? So if I if I look outside and I look at nature and I'm looking at a, a lion taking down a gazelle, right? The thing <laughs> is not like, oh, well, you have a right to life gazelle, so I'm just going to starve today. So like, yeah. I, I, I don't see the same kinds of, you know, questions and, and um, consideration and the weightiness of sanctity of life given mm -hmm. elsewhere like what makes it kind of unique to human beings where does it come from why are we even why do we care like do we even have you know sanctity of life kind of a right to life in the ways that you're talking about yeah yeah i think it's grounded in what we talked about last time regarding uh the origin of human rights in general because humans are made in the, the image of god so genesis 127 um talks about the creation uh, God says, let us make man in our own image, and then he gives uh, mankind dominion over the, uh, over the earth and tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. Um, and so we see humans uh, are, are made uh, different then or unique from the animals. Um, and so whereas uh, an animal, you know, doesn't have the same rights as a human, and some people might not be happy with that uh, conclusion, but Scripture clearly presents that. Uh, there's only one creature that's made in God's image, and that would be humans. And uh, we talked about last time as well that something has value, well, because it's been given that value. And um, if, if humans are the ones that determine what um, has value and what does not have value, then we basically play the role of God. And, and I can say, well, uh, that person over there does not have value to me, uh, so therefore I'm not going to treat them as anything of value. And then this person over here, I value that person, so I'm going to treat them, treat them better. Um, but, you know, God has given value to things, and he tells us in his word what has value, and he's the one that bestows value upon it. So our job is to recognize that. Um, and so I think it's pretty clear throughout all of Scripture that human life has has value and that it, it cannot be so easily taken. And we have to ask ourselves, what do, okay, so what does God say about um, human life? And if, uh, first of all, can it ever be taken? And if so, when? When does God allow that to happen? What are the circumstances in which um, a person might be uh, f have their life forfeit, right? Um, and so uh, we see the creation of mankind in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, we, we, we see the fall of Adam, uh, the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. But the first time we see um, an actual murder take place is Genesis chapter 4 with the story of Cain and Abel. I noticed it didn't take long. No, it did not take long at all. Um, and that's very interesting, like one of the very first sins that's depicted in scripture apart from the fall itself one of the first sins i think actually the first sin is murder mm. that is the first uh sin that's actually depicted uh in scripture there and what happens is post fall right post fall yeah, post -fall, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah what happens there in genesis chapter four and you can just it's, it's a very short story it's it's uh basically uh verses one uh until 
probably verse uh, 17 or so. Um, and essentially what happens is that uh, Cain and Abel are brothers. Uh, they're each offering sacrifices to the Lord, but Cain's sacrifice is not pleasing to God. Uh, we see that in verse and verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, uh, God had no regard. So Cain becomes very angry, okay, at this situation that his offering is not being accepted by the Lord. And, <clears throat> excuse me, the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face or countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So God is warning Cain uh, about his sin and that he needs to uh, fight his sin and not give in to it. But Cain, of course, does not do that. And he ends up becoming envious of his brother, uh, angry that his brother has been, uh, has been accepted by the Lord. And so he kills him. Okay. And then God, you know, asks, where is Abel, your brother? And says that the uh, his brother's blood is crying out from the ground, and so Cain is cursed because he took the life of his brother. Now Cain, uh, interestingly enough, is not given the death penalty. Uh, essentially, you know, Cain Cain says that himself. He kind of complains about it. He says, "My punishment is greater than I can bear." This is verse thirteen. Then verse fourteen, you have driven me today away from the ground. Um, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer, and whoever finds me will kill me. So he's worried about his own life. He thinks that people are going to kill him now because of what he's just done. And the Lord says, okay, not, that's not going to be the case. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And so Cain receives this mark that's to, uh, to delineate him as uh, not only under God's curse, but he's not to be, he's not to be killed. Um, and we can kind of, and I don't want to spend too much time going into why perhaps God did not institute the um, capital punishment at this point in time. But, the, um, but we see, obviously, that God values life and that murder was, was punished. It was not pleasing to the Lord. And the first time we see capital punishment implemented is in Genesis chapter 9. Uh, with the Noahic covenant. So after, after, after the flood, after God establishes his covenant with Noah, he says in Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So that's the first clearest example of, uh, of God explicitly saying that there shall be a, the death penalty for those who commit murder. So I think this lays the groundwork um, for our discussion about should there be a death penalty, um, is it even warranted in Scripture? Clearly it is, uh, at least in the Old Testament, and so we can have that discussion about, well, does that continue today? You know, how, how does that play out there? Does that kind of uh, set the framework for you there, Dylan? Well, yeah, no, so that, that's exactly where I was going. So, <laughs> how, so yeah. we can, so how do we take that next step? You know, what does it look like to say, okay, well, is it the case that because uh, there was capital punishment instituted here in the Noahic Covenant in Genesis 9. Therefore, this is something that continues even today. Yeah. Um, and this requires an understanding of how covenants relate to people. So, uh, very briefly, um, all of us are in a, you know, born into the covenant with Adam, uh, even though the word covenant is not used in the book of uh, in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. 
later on, uh, I believe in Isaiah, uh, God speaks about the covenant that was broken uh, by Adam. Hosea 6, 7. Uh, Hosea, yeah. sorry, Hosea, the minor. But they, like the Adam, have father. transgressed the covenant. Yeah. They have transgressed the covenant, like Adam, they did. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, and then, of course, the Noahic covenant is is so much a a reiteration of the covenant with Adam. Uh, Noah is told, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. It's 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 uh, it's almost Adam part Adam part two, if you will. And there's a few changes to it as well. Noah is allowed to eat of the of the animals, not to eat meat, whereas Adam was given just the green the green fruit, the fruit of the green trees. So, um, what we see there is that if we're all under Adam and we're all in Adam, and that's certainly a New Testament concept. Paul even says that in Romans chapter five, everyone is in Adam. Okay, so. Uh, in another sense, we're all under Noah. No, the covenant that God made with Noah is for all of Noah and all of his descendants, and that includes us. And the rainbow, as the sign of the covenant, is given to everyone, that God will not destroy the whole world again via flooding. And the, and the opportunity to eat meat is given to everyone, and this prohibition against murder is given to everyone. So in that sense, we could say everyone is under the Noahic covenant. Now, um, we see this carried forward in the Mosaic Covenant, and I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20 is the uh, first enunciation of that, and of you know one of the Ten Commandments is, uh, "Thou shall not murder." Uh, I'm looking at Exodus chapter 20 verse 13. Now, some translations would use the word "kill," right? "Thou shall not kill," but uh, uh, the, the Hebrew there is is leaning more towards the concept of unlawful killing or or murder, right? Um, uh, wicked, wicked taking of human life, and that and that makes sense because there's other laws in in Exodus and in the Mosaic Code that talk about um, the death penalty. Okay, so you're not supposed to commit murder, but those who who do commit murder um, are to be put to death. And then also there's there's the concept of self-defense that's enunciated in uh, in the Mosaic Covenant. So it's not, uh, and we'll go through several examples in which it's not uh, unlawful to take human life um, there, even in the in the moment of self-defense. So I think we see that play out for the people of Israel uh, there. Um, and you know I think that the the question then comes, of course, how does that relate to the Christians today? Mm. To the, to the New Testament today, right? Mm. So, um, and this does get into the question of, of hermeneutics, uh, you know, Herman who, hermeneutics, you know, how do we interpret the Bible? How do we, how do we apply anything in the Old Testament uh, to the New Testament? Um, and there's a couple principles that uh, I think are, are worth enunciating here. Uh, one is that, um, you know, Jesus says, that he did not come to abolish the law, okay, or to discard it, right? And we're talking about Matthew 5, um, but to fulfill the law. And then we see in his own teachings, he doesn't, Jesus never diminishes uh, the law, but he actually expands it in many ways. So if you go to Matthew chapter 5, um, and it talks about how, you know, Matthew 5, 17, do not, do not think that I've come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. 
But then to go to Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 21, and he talks about anger. And he says, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. Okay, and he's quoting from, from the Mosaic law. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And so here comes verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And so the whole point of this, and, and there's other examples where he takes a look at, let's say, um, the law against adultery. And he talks about how anybody who uh, uh, looks at a woman lustfully has already been guilty of adultery. And so the whole point of the law, he's showing us that the whole point of the law is, um, is to look inward at our sin. And yes, it's true that murder is wrong, but guess what? If you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, in the eyes of God, you're already guilty. You're already a sinner. So it's not just that you don't have to actually physically take someone's life. Yes, that's true, but it's, it goes way beyond. It goes way beyond that. Yes. So he's not getting rid of that law. Right, right. So what's interesting to me is, you know, as I think back, so one of the catechisms that I have affection mm -hmm. for is the Westminster uh, Catechism. And in the larger catechism, you know, one of the things I think that the Westminster divines helpfully did was lay out the concept that, you know, in the Ten Commandments, there's not only this notion of that which you um, should not do, but then kind of like turning that around, there's a positive aspect to that as well. And, you know, how we are to live or, you know, there's a there's a deepening of not just, OK, don't murder, but, you know, to Jesus's point, OK, if you rightly understood that prohibition, you would see how much deeper it really goes. Mm -hmm. So I'll just read real quick uh, the answer. So the question is, um, uh, what are the duties required in the sixth commandment? So this is about yeah. murdering. Mm -hmm. um, and the answer is the duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. Hmm. By just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, uh, physic, sleep, labor, and recreations, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient, bearing, and forgiving of injustice, mm -hmm. of, of injuries, and requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. Mm. All of that, yeah. all of that from the sixth commandment, yeah not to murder like that's incredible to me yeah right because what that's trying to get at is like look if you rightly understand this prohibition against murder it's flushing out an entire an entire framework for sanctity of life and how we are to behave in such a way so as to preserve that framework oh absolutely um it's it's interesting because uh the whole point of of the ten commandments is not just you know it's not just god saying don't do this don't do this but he's trying to show that he values something and and with the prohibition against murder, human life is of value because uh, it, the Ten Commandments fall under the category of the two greatest commandments. Loving God and loving your neighbor is um, on that hangs all the law and all the prophets, as Jesus said, right? So in a way, we can say that the Ten Commandments are a 
summary or categorization that falls under loving God and loving one's neighbor. And so, yes, a part of loving your neighbor involves not killing him. That's true. But it also means not hating him. It also means not uh, thinking those evil, wicked thoughts about how you can negatively affect that person's life and basically make their life, you know, a terrible, right? Yeah. That would all fall under that category of, A, not loving your neighbor and having hatred in your heart against your, your brother, you know? So, and, and, and you know, yeah. so to build on that too, so the law, we're told in Matthew 11, Mm -hmm. also has a prophetic function mm -hmm. so it's prop so the law itself is is casting a a casting forward a vision of what of almost what like a glorified existence will be like so it, you just imagine for a second you get to heaven and you know are there going to be signs posted in heaven thou shalt not murder mm -hmm. um <laughs> probably not right because because oh, quite apart from the fact that you know you can't you're going to have a hard time killing a glorified body. <laughs> Shout out to Carson for that body. point. Yeah, yeah you're going to have a hard time killing that body. But nevertheless, like the law itself has a prophetic function in that it's envisioning a day when hatred will be no more. Yeah. And when all of these different uh, items in this list in the uh, in the Westminster Larger Catechism that we just kind of rattled off, right? Meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance. Like these are going to be like standard, like commonplace. You know, like it's it's envisioning a day when when anger will be no more, yeah. which is, yeah. at, you know, the, the root of. Uh, you know, one of the roots of murder and the prohibition for murder. Yeah. So it's just it, it really is. a It's a beautiful vision that is so glorious and so worth preserving and so weighty that to 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 spit in the face of that by murdering someone, by killing them unlawfully. Yeah. It, it is so like the, I, you cannot overstate the magnitude of of mm -hmm. scuffing the image of God yeah. like that. Yeah, but now this leads to a, 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 the question that some of our our more pacifist-leaning brothers and sisters, Lord, again, I respect them, um, they might say, well, yeah, of course murder's wrong, of course, but Christians should not be the ones that uh, uh, that punish that kind of crime, or capital punishment is still not necessary, or should not be implemented, or if it even is necessary, Christians shouldn't be part part of that. And we're not going to, I don't want to spend too much time about whether Christians are, uh, can or cannot engage in the civil magistrate or be, be part of the government. But I think Romans chapter 12 and 13 uh, really helps to bring some clarity here. And um, again, this is where one area where chapter divisions are not uh, entirely helpful because, you know, Paul's letter to the Romans would have been one letter, not, not divided into different, you know, chapters in that regard. We do it for simplicity's sake, but start with chapter 12, verse 14, and I'll read there, and then I'll go right into chapter 13 uh, up until uh, verse 7. So 12, 14 starts with this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome but by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, the reason I read those all together in one thought is because in chapter 12, at the end of 12, you see God says to the Christians, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. And, and he quotes, vengeance is mine, I will repay. But then in chapter 13, just a few verses later, he says that the civil government is God's servant and he is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So what's the connection here? Paul is saying, individual Christians, you are not to engage in revenge. That is God's job to avenge. And guess what? That job is administered through the civil magistrate in chapter 13. The civil, the civil magistrate is God's avenger who's carrying out God's wrath against the evildoer. So, um, whereas, you know, we can, it's another question to talk about whether Christians should be involved in the government, but it still stands that God has instituted the government under God's authority to carry out God's wrath against evildoers. And that means getting revenge, putting the wicked murderers to death. Because it says he bears the sword and not in vain. What does it mean to bear the sword? Well, the sword is an instrument of killing. Okay, so I think it's a very strong case can be made that even under the New Covenant in the New Testament, God has, has ordained the death penalty to still be um, implemented by government and for the purpose of exacting e uh, uh, revenge against the evildoer. Is that, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's right. And we also see an example of that, actually, where, where Paul kind of appeals to his, his, his rights as a citizen in yeah. Acts 25. Okay. So in Acts 25, verse 10, uh, Paul before Festus, but Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. Verse 11, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. So in other words, here's Paul kind of in the throes of, you know, the you know, that which he had written. <laughs> um, I, actually, I don't know if by this point Romans 13 had been written, probably not. But, I, I but, but, but principally, he's in the throes of that which he, he either has written or is going to write in Romans 13. Here he is before the civil government essentially saying, look, if, if I am truly uh, guilty of, of some crime warranting the death penalty, he says, I don't refuse to die. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if the punishment is just, 
then the punishment is just, and that is that is what needs to be uh, to be executed for me. But uh, yeah. but here, you know, he, he clearly does not. He does not have that same. It's it, he did not commit a crime for which he deserves to die. Um, so then, you know, the story goes on in the rest of uh, chapter twenty five. But it is interesting that you have here uh, an example in Paul where you know the rubber meets the road. He's the one in the hot seat for that which he would write in Romans thirteen, and here he's saying, look, I'm I would. I would refuse to almost like refuse to not die <laughs> if 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 that's what justice demands then that's what justice demands that's true um and that's that's heavy like can you imagine like most of us we go before a judge in a court and we were like you know even if we know we're guilty we will plead to the wazoo of every little thing that we can think of just like just to kind of get out of mm -hmm. the of, of the death penalty but here like what integrity it takes to say like if i truly am guilty then let justice be done. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and that question then comes in, okay, well, let's say that, that the death penalty should still be uh, in existence today. When, sh when should it apply? When is it okay to take, uh, to take someone's life? Um, we talked about self-defense, and I think there's a clear argument for that, that we can look at Exodus 22 for that regarding if someone breaks in at night and into your home, um, and, and you were to kill that person in a struggle, uh, there's no blood guilt upon you. That's 22 verse 2. Uh, we also have uh, certain wars. It's okay and uh, justified warfare. That's certainly uh, presented in, in, uh, in the, Old, the Old Testament. I mean, obviously, uh, Israel was commanded to engage in warfare, but even, uh, but even then, um, even after the conquest of the land, some rules were given in Deuteronomy chapter 20 about, about how to wage war uh, properly, um, and then, as far as uh, as far as crimes, uh, murder is 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 per perhaps the biggest one and the one that we want to focus on the most as most applicable today, regarding uh, what deserves capital punishment. And in the uh, Old Testament, uh, God gives uh, certain qualifications for that as well. First of all, any kind of premeditated murder. Uh, was warranted warranted the death penalty. So someone who had hatred in his heart uh, for his neighbor already, uh, and desire to want to kill them and laid and laid in wait for them, um, was uh, someone that needed to be put to death. Um, in certain cases where the uh, the murder was in the moment of passion, uh, if the intent was to kill the person, you you didn't really premeditate it, but in that moment you're like, okay, I'm you know it's gonna it's going down and I'm gonna I'm gonna kill them. In that case, yes, uh, uh, the capital punishment was warranted. Um, killing the unborn children, so you have killing children in general. Uh, uh, sacrifices to Moloch were to be punishable by, by death, so that would be child sacrifice. But even um, in cases where there was a struggle between two men and uh, a pregnant woman was injured, uh, and it says in Scripture that if, if that... Um, if the if the baby was killed, then the uh, the perpetrator has to pay uh, life for life in that uh, in that regard. Um, and there's other examples: uh, extreme negligence. So there's a couple laws in the Old Testament that talk about if your ox was prone to uh, goring somebody and you knew about it and did nothing to prevent that from happening, and the ox uh, gored someone and killed them, you as the owner of the ox, we're, we're liable.
to that. And that would be applicable very much so today with like um, with uh, with dogs who don't have who aren't uh, on leashes or behind fences. Right. So if if your dog, if you have a, a Rottweiler or a pit bull and it's already bitten people in the past, it's prone to attack people and you don't put any kind of restraint on it. No fence, no collar. You don't keep it in your house. You just kind of let it do its thing and it kills somebody and you kind of already uh, were warned about it. You're liable. Yeah, that's willful negligence. And willful it, it negligence. Not, you know, not even just in the cases of animals, but, you yeah. know, let's say you're outside chopping wood, you know, and, and you're swinging the axe. And as you swing it, the head of the axe flies off and like and cuts somebody. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, you know, you take into court and it's like, yeah, actually, that happened last week. You know, he knew about it. He didn't <laughs> tape the, the head of the axe back down on the handle. You know what I mean? Like, that's willful negligence. Like, come on. So, like, yeah. you know, if you're if you're driving a car that, you know, is you know a, a, a there's some kind of major safety hazard like it's it's just I, I I don't know it's it's got uh you know the the spokes coming out on on either side you know I, like I'm I'm picturing a Roman chariot or something like that <laughs> but like why are those illegal like yeah I mean that's different that that would be uh you know not yeah. negligence but but you get the point like if you're if you're negligent about something that could compromise the safety of another that's problematic yeah and the reason i bring all these all these different verses up and these different laws is because even though god allows for the death penalty and, and ordains it to happen um it's not it's not to just be dealt out willy-nilly okay i know that some people might be concerned that like we don't you know we don't want to end up like communist china or north korea where we're just often people you know left and right for any any offense at all the slightest offense you get the death penalty you get the death penalty i mean that's that is the epitome of of tyranny. Yeah, look under your seat. Ah, yeah, death penalty. There, exactly. Right? You don't want you don't want that. No, exactly. And and it's interesting about this is that God really shows great care and mercy, uh, even for those even for those who, who who maybe did commit a crime worthy of death. There are so many, there are so many uh, um, uh, check boxes that have to be checked before that person is uh, is actually put to death. So for example. Um, and the Old Testament speaks about at least two or three witnesses must be available for a person to be uh, convicted of a crime. And, oh, by the way, uh, any kind of false witness um, is, to be, is to be deterred, very much so. So, for example, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter uh, 19, starting at verse 15, uh, here's what the, the Word of God says. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So here's the point. Um, accusations of, uh, of murder or crimes like that, um, the judges are to inquire diligently into the matter. And if a false witness has been has been present, if someone is accusing someone falsely just to get back at them or just to, you know, just to just because they hate that person and they want that person to get punished, um, that false witness is going to receive the punishment that they intended to have administered to their neighbor right. that they accused falsely. And so that is meant to 
deter uh, false witnesses. Yeah. And for what it's worth, too, like the the requirement of two to three witnesses, I, I think in Scripture does not necessarily have to be a, a person but can be physical uh, evidence. Evidence, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That one, like today, would be have like a DNA testing. Yes. Or a security camera. Exactly. Would be considered uh, a witness, no doubt, uh, in that regard. Um, and of course, uh, uh, there's there's mercy shown as well in the Bible for for things like manslaughter. Uh, the cities of refuge are established uh, for those who accidentally uh, kill someone. Uh, here, here's an example in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 4. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally, without having hated him in the past, and he gives the example of, you know, someone who swings an axe and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. And so, the, and so, and there, and he goes on to talk about how um, he goes to the city and. Basically, that city puts the person on trial and tries to figure out, did that person accidentally kill his neighbor or did he purposely kill his neighbor and just run away to try to get away, you know, get away with murder to escape the punishment of the crime? And, you know, again, a trial is to be done. And this trial is is done in a way in a um, objective third party location, uh, you know, a trial of peers but not in that town in which it happens so that cool heads can prevail and that an objective judge can, can perform justice. So it's beautiful what God's word has provided for um, how to go about properly administering justice, and that includes the death penalty. And so there may be cases where a person is guilty of a crime and they get away with it because there's only one witness, and that's in God's hand. God has... God has, has set these uh, limitations in effect so that, in a way, innocent people are not put to death. And yes, there might be some guilty people who are allowed to live, but at the end of the day, God will bring final judgment. And we, we, we have to be satisfied with that. Thoughts on that, Dylan? Yeah, no, I mean, I, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the, the human heart yearns for justice, right? Mm -hmm. And we, that yearning is not going to be satisfied until we are in glory. Where, yeah. where there will be perfect justice at the resurrection of the just meted out yeah. once and for all. And, you know, that and until then, you know, any kind of uh, system that tries to implement God's standards for justice, you know, that system is going to have its shortcomings because it's executed by fallible men and women, by sinful men and women. Um, you know, one one thing that comes to mind just as, I, as we've as you've been reflecting on capital punishment and on so many of the laws that that weigh heavy on on the matter it reminds me that you know where do we see this punishment executed par excellence it's it's at the cross yeah so here you have christ taking upon his shoulders uh have, having in, having our sin our lawlessness our law breaking imputed to him such that what justice required in that moment was the wrath of God resting on the sun. And you just like, that blows my mind. And, and the fact that here, justice is executed through capital punishment. Justice is executed through the cross. And now when it's, it's just because again, in that moment, our sin and our lawlessness was imputed to Christ. 
And Christ's perfect record by virtue of dying for us is now imputed to us so that we have his righteousness. We are counted righteous. And all of that happened through Christ shed blood. Yeah. So yeah. It, it it really does get to the heart of what the gospel is is all about, yeah. I think. Yeah, and we I mean that's exactly right, and that's something that we should all be thinking about as uh, we reflect on these these topics here. And I know that we didn't really get into um uh, and we can, and I want to spend just a few minutes talking about it, but like so far we've just been looking at the theological, the biblical arguments here, scripture itself. I know that there are counter arguments that people would, would bring up like, well, practically speaking, um, the death penalty does not work to prevent or deter crime. And I, again, uh, much can be said about that, but at the very bottom of it, um, I do, I do think that Scripture makes it clear that it does deter crime, um, but it's not primarily about deterrence. It really is about satisfaction of a debt payment, whereas you take the blood, you take the life of somebody else, you that blood cries out, and there's there's a debt that now is imputed to you, yeah. and you have to pay that debt. Um, one would say to society, and I think that's partially true, but ultimately to God, right. because that person you just killed is made in God's image, but. Uh, um, as far as deterrence goes, um, I do think it, it does deter those kinds of crimes. We see in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, um, it says this. It says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. I mean, so so Solomon uh, is saying there that, like, yeah, because crimes aren't punished quickly, people aren't deterred. They, right. they continue in their in their sin. Um, and even in that chapter I just uh, read from Deuteronomy about the false witness, uh, it says at the end of that, um, so shall you purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Right. So God explicitly says, if you do this properly, they shall hear and they shall fear. I mean, and I think common sense indicates that deterrence does work, because just consider your children as, as parents, right? How do we change behavior? How do we prevent behavior? Well, if you really want to want to stop your child from doing something, you have to be consistent in administering discipline, and sometimes that has to hurt. But if you just take your sweet time and you never do it, or if you keep giving warnings and never actually follow through, or if the punishment is like really minor, it's not going to deter behavior. That's the whole that's the whole point. So I think if if someone's going to make the argument that death penalty doesn't work. The only way to get that, to figure that out, is we need statistical data. We need to compare um, a country where there's no death penalty that's given over several years and decades, and we have to compare that with a country that actually administers justice quickly, properly, and consistently in accordance with God's Word. And the thing is, I, I don't really think that you're going to find that many case studies of at least modern countries where God's law is in, and is being implemented consistently and, and properly there. Um, so that's just one one point I want to bring up there. And the last one is uh, more towards maybe those who would say, well, how can you be pro-death penalty but against abortion? Because I thought you're all about protecting life. And I, I would say, again, that's like a, comparing apples and oranges. Uh, I think an analogy that, that, is, that would 
one analogy to that would be saying like I'm against you know shooting heroin, but I'm all for vaccines, right? And someone would say, well, that's hypocritical because they both involve putting needles in arms. I thought you're against using needles in your arms. It's like, well, well, no, it depends on what you're talking about, the context, right? I'm not against the killing of human life in an abstract sense. I'm against it in certain in certain areas, it's in certain contexts, right? So, yeah, I, I think that we have to have, you know, God is our standard. God's word is our standard. Um, and like I said before, I mean, there are certain examples in Scripture where it's okay to take human life, um, death penalty for crimes, uh, self-defense against uh, someone trying to take your life, and perhaps some war as well. But in the case of, let's say, abortion, the unborn child is guilty of none of those. The unborn child is not committed of crime worthy of death. The unborn child is not waging war against the mother or is not assaulting the mother in form of like self-defense on her part. None of those none of those are valid. So in that regard, uh, the baby should never be put to death. Right. So, I mean, I, I think those are just some quick arguments I would bring up regarding uh, uh, responding to what, what is commonly uh, said against those who are pro death penalty, but also uh, against abortion. Um, so final thoughts, uh, Dylan, on that there? Well, yeah, no, I mean, I would, I would just say, you know, the, the bottom line, I think those are, those are a good three, right? If there's some kind of, uh, death penalty meted out by the state, it, uh, for, for punishment, um, if there is self-defense or in cases of, of just war, um, I think those three are, are a fair summary, um, of, of those instances where, you know, with, with great care, with great thought, much weighing, and by the prop and executed by the proper authorities, um, capital punishment may be yeah. maybe acceptable. And and you know, I think I want to say just two more things there. If we stand, if we're like against the death penalty, like altogether against it, I, I think we need to be careful about what we're saying when we when we say that, because what we're suggesting is that we're suggesting that our understanding of valuing life is better than God's or it's um, it, or God doesn't really value human life like we do, like as if we value it more because we are against killing anybody at, at any time. Well, God knows what he's doing and, and he values human life so much that those who take it forfeit their own. Like the penalty, the payment is that severe. The debt is that great. And then and lastly, um, if we're against the death penalty, it, it, it seems like it might we might be suggesting that humans are not as as sinful or as fallen as we are, right? You know, we can just throw them in prison and that will reform the murderers, change them and make them make them good again. Well, the fact is, is that humans are depraved. You know, we, we believe in total depravity. Sin has affected every every area of our lives. And and we can't we cannot pretend that humans are not that bad. I mean there is reform that does take place, but that happens through the gospel being presented uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ from the church to a sinful and fallen world. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, you know what's crazy about that too is like, you know, if we are so strongly against capital punishment, um, what do we do with hell, right? Like, here's here's a, like, are we more loving than God? Are we, hmm. are, do we fancy ourselves, you know, better than God or more just than God? Here's a God at the end of the day who declares that his justice will be done cosmically and eternally. Mm. And part of what that looks like is 
an eternal place of torment that we call hell that is to be feared and to be shunned. So if we're worried about the death penalty and we think that God is somehow unjust for laying down an avenue for that to be taken, for that path to be taken, what do we do with a God who would send people to hell? I would say that is going to be the bigger question for somebody who's so vehemently against capital punishment to wrestle through. And it doesn't mean that criminals, there can't be yeah. remediation. It doesn't mean that, you know, people cannot be reformed and, exactly. and change behavior. It doesn't mean that it can never happen. What what I think the point is, is that, you know, don't kid yourself in thinking that people are basically good. And if we would only, you know, fix their social contexts, then, you know, we would arrive at some kind of utopian state where nobody felt the desire to murder or yeah. where, where those kinds of uh, you know, where those kinds of act- actions went away. That's not going to happen until until glory. Yeah. Well, Eric, yeah, thank you again for, for your thoughtfulness and for preparing uh, today's topic for us and kind of walking us through how to, how to think through things carefully here. Um, if you have follow-up questions, again, we are teachable on these matters. Please feel free to reach out. Um, you can contact us at twoguysandabible.podcast at gmail.com, Twitter at twoguysandabible, facebook.com forward slash twoguysandabible, and twoguysandabible.org. Eric would love all of your questions <laughs> <laughs> on these matters. Uh, but yeah, seriously, brother, thank you again for, for taking us through this. And thank you, listeners, for hanging tight. And God bless. Yeah, God bless. Take care. Take care.